0: Okay, it is Wednesday, December 6, 2006, and I'm George Jardine. I'm here at Adobe Systems in San Jose with most of the RAW team for Adobe Camera Raw and Lightroom, Mark Hamburg, Zalman Stern, and Thomas Noel. Hello. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you for Hello. taking time out. I know you've been crushed with meetings and super busy schedules coming up to the launch of a couple of big products, so I uh, really appreciate you taking the time to sit down and and chat with us because there's a bunch of crazy users out there that want to hear from the team so that's why we're here
1: We strive to please our adoring fans Solomon <laughs> wants groupies
0: we're gonna get some groupies for you actually I gotta <laughs> run up and get my camera we gotta take pictures of you guys do we have a camera here in the room even a point-and-shoot okay well we'll, we'll work the
1: something. The entire out. RAW team without a camera this is embarrassing
0: yeah that's embarrassing I left my camera in my office
1: and Shiwi and, and isn't anywhere around
0: no, but Shiiwi sent questions he would like me to ask you.
1: Ah. <laughs> Can we his, taunt him? Absolutely. His, his aura is here.
0: <laughs> Shiwi's aura is everywhere, <laughs> if it has to do with digital imaging. So anyway, now that we're um, getting close to shipping Lightroom, I think the, uh, the raw features in Lightroom are really getting interesting. We've had some changes between B4. B, actually, changes between B3 and B4.
2: Yeah, there were lots of changes between B3 and B4, and we'd hoped that that would finalize them. And then we've gone and looked at various things, and there are changes between B4 and B5.
0: Well, yeah, but I mean, I, I, we had um, three zones of luminance and contrast in B3, and we changed to the four zone thing in the tone curve with B4. And uh, I thought the users were going to howl screams of protest, but they seemed to go for it. Well, what inspired the change there?
2: Let me first talk about yeah the user reaction. I have seen some people complain that they actually they like the beta 3 curve better, but the chief reason I was able to gather out of that was they liked having brightness and contrast in with all the other controls, which did have a nice unity to it, but didn't work as well in terms of trying to sync things up with ACR. Uh. Um, so that's sort of what drove that split. The actual redefinition of the curve was looking at ways to get better control over the individual sections and better response in terms of how the controls interacted and worked with the split points, because in what, in beta 3, the split points really just controlled the ranges that the compression controls worked on, and there was no way to shift, if you wanted to shift between highlight luminance and shadow luminance, how they applied. So introducing the center point then allowed us to take something that's akin to highlight and shadow luminance and let you move that back and forth while also then having the other two split points to adjust um, the outer range controls, which are sort of the equivalent of the compression controls from before.
0: So the split point controls now operate on everything in the tone curve but not the brightness and contrast.
2: Correct. Is that correct? Yeah. And yeah they never worked on brightness and contrast. Um, they well, they, they it seemed
0: like for a while they were working on contrast.
2: <sighs> they may have done something with contrast. We've been through so many iterations on this that...
0: <laughs> well anyway it's yeah. working really well. So let's talk about um, highlight recovery has been removed from uh, exposure or separated out from exposure. What was the thinking on that?
3: The old Camera Raw workflow was kind of awkward for a number of people, and that involved first using the exposure slider to set the clipping white point, mm-hmm. and then using the brightness slider to get the image to look the overall uh, mid-tone brightness correct. Yep. And that involved making the image look worse first, and then making it look better. <laughs> it, wasn't the best it, it
2: works well if your image is underexposed, because when you move the clipping down and exposure, it brightens the image, and then you can use the brightness control to sort of further tune on top of that. But if your image is overexposed...
0: Which would be the the case when you're looking for that highlight recovery.
2: That would be the the chief case where it applies. You end up, you go and you slide the exposure down, which makes the whole image look dark, and then you have to go and add brightness back, and there gets to be this sort of countervailing move. You make an exposure move, and then you make a brightness move in the other direction. and So, highlight recovery started as the notion of saying, well, can we do something that allows you to avoid that, and if you crank the highlight recovery up, then you can just use exposure to move things back and to move the overall image appearance back and forth with respect to lightness while letting highlight recovery deal with the clipping issues. It's evolved a bit since then, we should say, though he's not here today for (laughs) We'll talk about Michael Johnson, one of the things that sparked this to some extent was the way Raw Shooter managed to work in this regard. Raw Shooter basically just rolled off the exposure. It tended it tended not to clip, but this then meant that exposure could do the job of just mm. changing how light or dark the image was without uh, worrying about clipping. Now, it didn't have a clipping control, so <laughs> you know, there's a loss there, but...
3: Yeah, it be- became less suitable as a, ex- a real exposure compensation control then when they yeah. did that. So. Uh, We we think we have the best of both worlds right now with the, uh, we support two completely different workflows, a visual workflow where you can adjust the sliders one by one and each step makes the image look better along the way. And we also have sort of the analytical workflow, which is basically still the same as the ACR workflow is where you adjust the exposure slider with the option key held down, set the clipping point, and then you can go to use the brightness control to make the image look good. Mm If you're the kind of user who likes the option key on the exposure slider, you probably want to keep on doing what you're doing now with ACR. Mm-hmm. Uh, and set the exposure clipping first, and then adjust the brightness slider. If you're more a visual person and you want to um, see things, you would use the exposure slider to get the overall brightness correct, and then adjust the highlight recovery to adjust the clipping point exactly. Yeah.
2: So the other tweak on things is that highlight recovery also, once you essentially push past issues with respect to exposure clipping will then go and start trying to recover additional contrast in the highlights by doing essentially the opposite of fill light. Mm. but but it seems like that only kicks in once we're past the point of resolving clipping issues
3: yeah we we do real highlight recovery and then we sort of do simulated highlight recovery beyond a certain point right
0: (laughs) but it seems like before you do any exposure compensation it seems like you can turn on the highlight clipping indicator and start rolling back that highlight recovery until all of that indicator goes away and then adjust your brightness it's another workflow that just really works for me
3: yeah there are many ways you can go through this now and they Tend to end up with a very similar result at the end. Mm -hmm. But it's whichever is more convenient for the user, the exact order they choose to adjust things. It's just working really nice for me.
1: It's a little more discoverable. I think with the previous design, there was one good way to do it. That was a little bit of a trick.
0: Yeah, yeah. But no, it's just really, really working nice now.
1: But it does mean that
2: when people ask, well, what's the right way to do it? (laughs) The answer is, it depends. There's more than one way to do
1: it.
0: It wouldn't be an Adobe product if there wasn't more than one.
2: Yeah, well, of course, in Lightroom, we'd sort of tried to reduce the frequency with which there were multiple ways to do things. But this comes down to there are people who really think about the problem in the sort of analytical, you know, just step by step. They're prepared to deal with fixing the clipping, potentially makes the image look worse. But in their heart, they know that it's, you know, it's not clipping anymore. So that's better even if it looks worse than fixing it. And then there are people for whom, No, they really want to work on doing things that say, what's the problem with this image? It's too light. It's too dark. I've got highlights blowing out. And Let me grab a control and make that piece look better.
0: Well, we're busy trying to teach that in workshops and (laughs) seminars. (laughs) And the fill light stuff is coming along nicely, too. So is that straight out of raw shooter or is that a thing out of shadow highlight correction or is it a hybrid? Um,
1: Entirely new code. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, uh, You disavow
2: uh, both of those fantasies. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: The uh, particulars of how it, the tuning of how it behaves is uh, largely uh, stuff Thomas came up with. And uh, there's, you know, new particular implementation of some low-level image processing that uh, we got uh, out of a particular piece of research. But uh, Hmm. it doesn't, I mean, people bring up these, you know, where did it come from? You know, did it come out of raw shooter? And it's not like I particularly care what people think about, you know, where we get our technology, but I think it's important to inform people that it doesn't behave just like some previous thing. You know, it's the same idea. And we certainly, you know, Michael Johnson, we talk a lot about how the behavior of those things happen. And, uh, you know, we pick up a lot of ideas, but it's not exactly the same thing that we're picking up as a whole piece. Right. It's interesting, a lot of the time I talk with
2: Michael Johnson is uh, there will be places where you know we've come up with something that we'll just go, yeah, that's essentially what Raw Shooter does. <laughs> and there are other times where we've gotten things that it hasn't been completely easy to extract from Raw Shooter, but we've gotten the sort of general description of what Raw Shooter does and have done something similar. Vibrance would be an example in mm-hmm. that regard.
0: Mm-hmm. So, on the fill light control, how is that different from the effect you would get by adjusting the shadows? in the Tone Curve?
3: Uh, well, it's, it's a non-global operation in that it actually tries to find the areas of the image that are dark and adjusts them differently than isolated dark pixels in bright areas of the image. So it sort of segments the image into light areas and dark areas and adjusts each segment differently.
0: So sounds like it's using a mask rather than just- Yeah, a, it's, a, it's
3: building a mask under the hood mm-hmm. and then uh, using that mask to do differential uh, adjustments in different parts of the image range,
0: uh, and what's the benefit of doing it that way rather than using the
3: tone? Uh, curve? If you use a tone curve uh, to bring up the shadows, the net result is a lower contrast image mm-hmm. because you have to compress the whole tone range to fit in whatever the new target range you're you're doing. Uh. Whereas if you use the we call it the fill light mask in the code uh, to selectively bring up the brightness of the dark areas. We can preserve the uh, local contrast in all the areas of the image.
0: Hmm. It's working really nice, but it seems like it almost always requires a tweak to the darks,
2: or is it the shadows? Oh, well, right yes, the, there the is, the the shadows. is certainly there is, yeah, the matter. Yeah, it's not a
0: problem. You know, it's just you know, it's just a it's yeah. Cool. It, which
3: is why it's you know, upstream of that control in in, in the um, uh, order we chose. To yeah, to
1: found prior to fill light, like you never. I mean, you could push the blacks up a little bit, um... but. I found that the entire upper range of that slider was kind of dead space. You can get it much above 10 prior, unless you had a hugely overexposed image. But with fill light, it's actually a very useful technique to push the fill light fairly extreme and then run the, the shadows up much higher than you would have before. It's nice to think about, can you get one slider to do exactly what you want? But it turns out that it's somewhat image dependent and it's also somewhat dependent on exactly what you want. You can't, you know, read someone's mind. So I view that particular one as an interesting new workflow option, and that I never would have considered using the shadow slider in that one, or black slider in that way before. But um, with fill light, it, it actually turns out yeah, to be pretty I useful. Mean, it's something that probably could
2: stand to. Be improved over time, but uh, it would require changing the definition of what the black slider does, essentially, or adding another control, basically. or adding another control, or so to deal with the which I really is something. Want to clip that this I, data off before it gets to fill light, essentially, yeah. hmm.
3: and that, that that is actually something I have in the labs right now, but not ready for shipping yet. But it, it it's a definitely a still a research area in terms of exactly how the black point is set and dealt with. So onto the vibrance
0: control. I think we talked about this in one of the last podcasts, how it's different from saturation. But I was curious, I think at one point you mentioned um, that it was actually vibrance that you're using in the HSL panel?
2: Um, No, actually, it it is just saturation. I think I may have looked at doing something that was somewhat akin to vibrance. But HSL shifted, I believe in beta, yeah, in beta four it. Shifted, so this is this isn't an area where people are going to experience changes. The experience changes in the HSL panel are of a different nature. Beta uh, five, but But, um, uh, um, to uh, to using um, yeah, beta Mm -hmm. three and earlier actually did an adjustment for saturation, which had somewhat more vibrance-like effect. The the issue in vibrance is that vibrance um, adjusts the brightness of the color in addition to its saturation is defined via I believe we're now using, essentially, we're using HSB saturation is what we work on. Um, And Vibrance will actually change the brightness in addition to the saturation. The other tweak that's in Vibrance um, that doesn't show up anywhere else in the app at this point but is that wasn't in Raw Shooter is that it has a skin tone detector which as long as the lighting isn't too extreme or you know, people aren't really, really sunburned and really, really pink um, will mean that you can push the vibrance on an image without going and just you know, thoroughly destroying the skin tones. So you know, if someone's wearing you know, a red sweater, you can crank the vibrance and the sweater will get much more intense, but their face won't start looking like they've just got a weird skin disease. Mm-hmm.
0: No, it works nice, but now in HSL panel we have uh, orange and aqua. Where did these colors come from?
2: Well, the six taps that were in releases up through beta 4 are essentially the ones that you get just from the way color spaces are defined. So you have red, green, and blue, and cyan, magenta, and yellow, which I, I used to comment when people would say, you've got 18 sliders here, and of course now we have 24, but um, 18 sliders. I say, yeah, but there are really only nine concepts between hue saturation and luminance in the six hues, and you knew all of them except for cyan. Um, but when you started looking at things, you go and you try and fix foliage in earlier so what you discover is that foliage isn't green; it's yellow, <laughs> and you, you're dealing with flesh tones or something. And yeah, they're, you know, they're you know without an orange, <laughs> they're more or less yellow. So one of the things that came up is okay, the hue taps that you get from just looking at pro, the way ProPhoto RGB works don't actually make sense in terms of the way people experience colors. So we went through and started saying, at the same time, not wanting to just overrun things with too many taps on this, wanting to be able to go in and say, well, what colors do people really identify when they look at images, and where do they draw? They so, you know, put it together a spectrum and had lots of people come in and draw lines. And you know, one of the really obvious things was everyone marked out orange. And you notice that when you do red, green, Blue, cyan, magenta, yellow. There is no orange in there. Orange is still falls between red and yellow. So it was you know, okay. We got to put in orange. And as I said, you know, green is you know, people look at foliage and grass and so forth think that it's green. But you know, where Tons Profoto of RGB it, yeah. green comes is you know way too blue. So it's okay. We got to move green way over, and then it's essentially start working through those and then there's okay well where do the rest of them fall and where do we need additional control coming in no but it's uh, i
0: think it's just really nice it's a sign of the team i think that we're willing to break the rules and see. think about the problems with fresh eyes you
2: know we played briefly with roy G. Biv. <laughs> yeah um yeah
3: the, the 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 classic reference for colors is the crayola instead mm-hmm. of crayons and that's what people learn mm-hmm. for the names of the colors and uh, cyan
2: is not a Creole color <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, Thomas and I did have some disagreements about whether aqua should be aqua or pine and, <laughs> but not, I think not, that not comes down to, to what chartreuse. the chartreuse yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah that's true we did think about having yeah there was the potentially just adding something in between yellow and green at one point and there's well that would be chartreuse but no one actually knows what chartreuse is
0: well maybe you could let the user name those ranges
2: I think it was briefly <laughs> called, you know, let's see, we, we went through lime as a candidate yes. color, which got interesting when we had orange, yellow, and lime, and I think we should rename yellow to lemon. <laughs> <laughs> we just do it as fruit names all the way around, potentially. So that really means that you can't have a good blue because there is no blue food, because blueberries are purple. <laughs>
0: well, it's working really great, and I also love the new uh, direct select. While we're talking about these colors... Is this is this what we're going to call this new tool? The direct select nipple? Direct adjust? Well, probably <laughs> not nipple. <laughs> um. Who did the UI on the uh, the nipple? Was that Phil?
2: Actually, I think that probably was one of the engineers in Minnesota. I'm yeah. not sure. Yeah. Phil may have supplied the, the graphic for it, that picking yeah. what was there. That that actually looks like Phil's design. Work, just, I just, I
0: remember back, it was way over a year ago when Kevin Connor and I were having a conversation, and he actually said, I think it would be really cool if you could click on the image on a shadow and drag your mouse up and have it lighten the shadow or whatever. Yeah. And, and now to see that yeah. work. So we is got that in so beta four.
2: Cool. We got the you know, click on the image and adjust. And then it was like, and we knew when we put, Beta 4 out. There were sort of obvious, we could use this in other places. We could go and use this in the HSL controls so that you can actually go in and click on something and adjust mm. the hue or the saturation or the luminance there. And I think that really is starting to pay off well in terms of tweaking, and it also it helps a lot with the grayscale mixer because you're not having to deal with the Okay, I'm looking at the grayscale, but I want to go and adjust the color. And what was the color that was underneath there? Well, that's uh, where flip you know, back and before forth. and after. Yeah, you can use before and after, you use a variety of things, but it becomes much easier when you can just click on the image and yeah. say, Well, I want this part of the image to be darker.
0: Yeah, it works really nice. When might we see some of this stuff appearing in uh, ACR, Thomas?
2: Well, you
3: actually got a uh, major preview of it uh, since this is a uh, this is recorded before the public beta of Photoshop CS3, but it's going, not going to be broadcast until after the public beta, so we're allowed to talk about it. So in as part of the public beta of Photoshop CS3, there is an early version of ACR 4.0, mm-hmm. which has many of the Lightroom develop panel controls mirrored into the new ACR.
2: Mm-hmm. This means that, yes, people who pick up the public beta have, CS3 are then ahead of Lightroom in terms of what they've got uh, since in in ACR4 contains you know, the changes we've just been talking about which are not reflected in Beta 4 of Lightroom.
0: Right, right. So folks that are processing their images in Lightroom version 1 will have at least complete compatibility with ACR4?
3: Yeah, it, Absolutely. Uh, we, we have not been able to talk about it a whole lot until recently but now that the public beta is out, people have seen the direction we're going there and essentially all of the controls from the Lightroom 1.0 develop module will be also controllable in ACR 4.0
0: So it's not just uh, an interpretation of the settings from Lightroom, you'll actually have the Lightroom controls. uh, It's the
3: same engine underneath. No, I know, but I mean there was some... some You'll be able to change all the parameters that you can change in Lightroom in in Photoshop and you'll be able to move files back and forth and the renderings will remain identical between the two. Very tier. cool. And it enables a lot of s- synergy between the uh, products. Yeah.
2: Well, uh, User yeah. interfaces won't be identical. So I mean some of the things we yeah. were talking about with the you know, drag on
1: the image to adjust is right. probably not going to be an ACR. But right. And in, in, in fact, I mean, the overall direction that we look at is to have a lot of user interface innovation, especially in Lightroom, but, you know, there might be some things that happen in ACR or elsewhere that, you know, kind of takes subtly different directions, at least, but that the underlying processing and the models of, of you know, how you adjust images and things are very similar um, so that we can have, you know, products that address different needs and, different tastes
0: maybe a file browser
3: versus a database
1: <laughs> all sorts of uh, yeah different different well, points in the space
3: yeah, bridge and adobe camera raw will continue to be what they were which is a file browser based uh, raw conversion method yep and lightroom is a database and raw conversion method so. yep
1: Lightroom t- to me is a—it's I mean a tour de force in the user interface department. It's really quite an experience, and there's a lot of wonderfulness to that. Um, it has personality, the, uh, as Mark commented yeah, the yes, other day. Yes, <laughs> which means and there are going
2: to be people who like it, and there are going to be people who don't like it. Uh, but you know, that was sort of the, the price of having a strong personality
1: in the yeah. user interface. Is <laughs> I look at it and I see easily many years of further improvement, development, more wonderfulness coming into that being. Whereas you look at ACR and Bridge, and it's a fairly well-developed paradigm. Um, It's not the same level of commitment to workflow in certain ways. I mean, we have a lot of constraints on what we can do in that that model, but at least we understand how it behaves Mm -hmm. and have tuned to certain aspects of it. So you might not be able to hit the same maximal smoothness and wonderfulness of the workflow, but it's kind of a little bit more of a predictable route that it goes down. Um, there's silly things like action scriptability. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there is a serious model for how to do extensibility in, in the whole Lightroom vision. But for the here and now, if you've got to crank out some JavaScript to process a bunch of images, Bridge and ACR can do that kind of thing. And you know, it might not be everything you wanted to put a beautiful user interface on your custom scripted workflow, but it'll get your job done. And so that's the sort of thing that in a 1.0 in situation with Lightroom, you know, there's a trade-off in how much of all those tiny little things you can polish and make oh, fully, yeah. fully available to everybody. So it,
0: you know. no, it takes time. So I'm seeing uh, cloning and healing working nicely now, finally, in, in Lightroom.
2: Yes, and Meaning, now we're evil, as I put yeah, it. Uh, yeah. Well, the way whole, you demo it. Yeah, well, okay. Cloning uh,
0: eyeballs into the <laughs> middle of people's foreheads.
1: <clears throat> yeah, but, For uh, dust spotting, just dust spotting
2: yeah you know, th- th- nice there's color. always been this sort of thing that you know, well you know one of the things is w- a potential distinction would be you know well if you can't really alter images you know you can make that as a distinction that makes you somehow more pure in a sense but it's a, the moment you have a tool in there that can fix dust spots it's probably open to abuse to do things like put eyeballs into the middle of people's foreheads
0: you know, just last night, we were commenting uh, that that's probably not what it's best used for, but uh, yeah, <laughs> it gets demoed uh, that way.
2: Yeah. It, um,
1: I'm it's old. a lot easier to see it than it is you know, if you do,
2: yeah, see, I had this little tiny dust spot
1: here, that, and now I don't. <laughs> I look at it, the target point for the design uh, is uh, for dust spotting. Sure. Maybe scratches, although, you know, and then on up to maybe skin blemishes or, you know, a little bit of beauty work type things. I want to make sure that it's really, really great tool for doing dust spotting. I mean, mm-hmm. Photoshop has the spot healing tool. And when you first fire that up and you use it, you're like, wow, this is this is just totally cool. Yeah. I, I can't believe this works, man. Wow. And I'd like to be able to get at least that, you know, some of that aspect to, you know, making this for dust spotting an image just, I mean, because dust spotting is a completely thankless task, right? You're looking at your image, you're like, wow, this is great, except for all those dust spots, dang it. So making that as easy as possible and to produce really wonderful results is the first priority for the future. Going forward, we may do more, uh, you know, modification-oriented, beauty-oriented things. I mean, it, it can make a huge difference in an image just to knock out one one spot on like a surface or whatever that you didn't catch right it's not actually dust on the lens or the sensor but there's something i shoot a a fair bit of macro and when you get the, the shot up in macro there there's you know fibers and particles on everything and you you didn't see them through or you didn't notice them through the viewfinder it's always one of them you really want to get rid of uh you know beauty work same or glamour type stuff you know a lot of retouching so our initial goals are basically dust plates. You can use it for some other stuff, um, yeah. but uh, we fix things that are generally circular. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, the, that's the sort of limitation that's in it at the moment. Yeah.
0: Did you see at the moment, okay, that was going to be my
1: next question. It, it, it's clearly a feature that will move forward, and it kind of gives a little bit of insight into the whole non-destructive editing. I mean, in fact, there was uh, a while back on one of the forums I follow, uh, somebody was saying you can't do uh, retouching, you know, dust spotting or any of that in, in a raw converter because, well, they're non-destructive and you have to have destructive program to, like, Photoshop to do that, I was like, yeah, you l- you learn the most interesting things on, <laughs> because, you know, in fact, <laughs> we do have that feature, um, and, uh, you know, going forward, I think we'll do more of that in the non-destructive model. I mean, our question on, you know, the whole non-destructive thing is sort of, you know,
2: is an interesting nomenclature on in this, you know. I've uh, argued on occasion, yeah, you know, Photoshop 1 actually had non-destructive editing, it was just based on the save as command, <laughs> Um, But uh, this is sort of, this is parametric editing, metadata based editing, and the interesting tension point there gets to be, well, how much metadata are you prepared to put in? We could have replacement pixels for every pixel in the image and declare, that well, that's just metadata describing how you change the image. (laughs) At some point, though, it ceases to feel like metadata, and um, we're clearly at the stage right now where Well, if you dump a 1,000 dust spots in, you're going to get a pretty big block of XMP to describe it, but... It'll work. But it'll work, um, and it'll be sort of clearly not as directly tied to the pixels. Mm -hmm. Um, There are other directions where as we do more and more localized stuff, you want to do more interesting boundaries than just circles where that potentially... You know, the tension gets more complicated. Yeah, and we have
1: you know other avenues of technology. When we, you know, I mean, current Photoshop-based approach is very user-driven. You find the features in your image and you modify them, and it's wonderful because, as, you know, as you say, you can feel the pixels between your fingers. It's, and I mean, it's a wonderful property of Photoshop. <laughs> yeah, it's you know, true. Th- uh, don't get me wrong, but the. Aspect of as we get more advanced technology where we can write code that finds some of the features and I mean the fill light mask is a, a Perhaps simple example, although it's, it's not all that simple actually It's so, um, Where it kind of does what you want in the case and you didn't have to do anything to create that mask right? you know, we can do a lot more of that kind of thing um, And in that model the metadata has a, a much bigger or a much more powerful way to specify the part of the image that it's referring to, without you know the user either having to draw a mask and we have to encode that in the metadata, or you know put down a thousand circles. So uh, we will, I think, at every turn have to preserve the power to say exactly what you want to, to override any kind of automatic thing we found or decision we made. But it's possible that if we get the technology good enough, that responsibility will be lifted.
0: Mm-hmm. So will we see this in uh, ACR four?
1: Well, uh, the healing cloning. healing healing cloning probably, probably. Yes. <laughs> that would be cool as this uh, is being recorded it isn't
2: yet completely implemented i think
1: would be uh, so it's not so much that i'm worried about as when this releases versus uh or what we oh. can say publicly but uh <laughs> i guess i'll have to worry about that um it's it's it is slated to be an acr4 cool
0: so the cloning technology is pretty cool does this give us a really clear advantage over what the competitors are doing in the non-destructive dust-busting space?
2: Well, the healing is you know, is based on the technology that's in the healing brush from Photoshop. Um, and the healing brush, the, spot, the patch tool, and the spot healing tool in Photoshop all essentially do the same thing underneath, and they're just different user interfaces for setting this up. And I've described what's actually in Lightroom and ACR is a um, circular patch tool. <laughs> um with a sort of spot healing inspired UI <laughs> mm-hmm. but that technology is something that is unique relative to the competitors in the space right now uh, the cloning effects we're getting i think are you know fairly nice but cloning is a pretty well understood yeah no that's what i meant the, sp- the spot healing yeah and cloning is mostly there for there are just cases where healing doesn't necessarily give people quite what they wanted and they fall back to cloning on occasion. Um,
0: Okay, cool before we dive into a few questions that andrew rodney and she sent us to talk about for a minute i just want to touch we just on have the, to say uh,
2: no color space questions allowed i was
0: just going to ask a color space question
2: sorry we did that we did those previously
0: yeah but you know you users, users are podcast. still <laughs> users are still asking questions about the zero to 100 percentages so i'm just i just want to clarify well, just when one people little, one... start
2: having you know 255 fingers <laughs>
0: No, seriously, I just, just a quick question on the percentages. So that's in the Melissa
2: RGB space? Those are in whatever that color space is called. Whatever that color space what is, is called. called.
0: Okay, and so do they give you an accurate indicator of what clipping might occur when you export to sRGB? No. Because that's what the users are asking I mean,
2: for. So for sRGB, they are not useful for t- showing you clipping. And if you're worried about clipping for sRGB, Lightroom doesn't have the UI facilities to help in that regard. And we've thought about some of the things to put in, but they actually, they would work against doing some performance optimizations that we want to do as well. Well, they
0: can't have it all in version yeah, one. That's so, what I've been, that's what you know, I've been telling
2: f- them. At this point, we haven't done the performance optimization. We haven't done the sRGB thing, but they're sort of, you know, doing one interferes with doing the other. <laughs> and Zalman? <there's> figuring out <laughs> the choice.
0: Any comments on that?
2: Well, the, the the ACR interface is taking a
3: different approach here, and, right. and when you set the workflow options to a particular color space, that affects both the RGB readouts and mm-hmm. the histogram display. So you can actually see the clipping in various color spaces. So, so you yeah. find it
0: to be a meaningful distinction? Yes, I do. Yeah. All right. Well, we're, we're, we'll be agreeing to disagree on that one then.
1: Yeah, it would be nice to get away from having to pay attention to target color spaces. I mean, it's a little bit of a different approach in that Lightroom, I think, tries very hard to have your workflow be abstracted from where your image is landing. right? And ACR has a traditional, I mean, how it was built originally, and it's not clear to me that you know that's the be all end all or anything, but that's how it works. And it's kind of a very Photoshop realm thing that you know what workspace, at least most of the time yeah. you're going to land in. yeah ACR, your next step out of ACR is dumping into Photoshop. And we're sort
2: of trying to say, well, we're setting settings that could be used for a variety of things downstream. Now, what Lightroom really needs to make that work out better is it needs better perceptual mapping into a variety of spaces mm-hmm. so that if you go in and really, really want to tune for SRGB, then you probably want absolute color metric as you don't want the compression artifacts or you want something so you can really judge where you're going with that. But if you're mostly worrying about just generating, finding the best images and then it's, oh, I need to spit out a bunch of SRGB versions of this, that's where perceptual color mapping and you know a variety of approaches in color management things actually pays off because it manages to bring things in without getting ugly clipping at the expense that some things end up a little less saturated. The problem is that generally for RGB spaces, there just aren't they don't generally get built with perceptual tables. I know well, Carl yeah. Lang built a perceptual monitor profile so that he could play with that but yeah, that's Carl Lang and he does that sort <laughs> of thing. <laughs> also any kind of uh,
3: ICC based perceptual mapping is not anywhere near optimal what you can do for an image in that uh, what you really want is to build a perceptual mapping between a particular image and a target space, not a particular source space and a destination space. Hmm. So you actually need to analyze the colors in the image you're you're converting from, figure out how much compression needs to be applied to get that image's colors to fit comfortably into the destination space and apply that.
0: So it sounds like Localized correction to me. I mean, why create a profile for us for one image? So wh- how or, you do,
2: or we come up with I know, mean, some I, sort of I compression w- control. I mean, but then you also get into the okay, I need to export all you know ten of these images, and I want to apply similar. Com- I want to apply the same amount of compression to all right. of them so that they're comparable. They, they so it's now I need to build a custom compression option for you know a set this, of images, a group of images. But
1: yeah,
3: often you don't want to change the mapping between images and images because that's because the background color changes behind you and have end up with different skin tones and stuff like
1: that yeah the images are (laughs) if they're going to be used together you need to do a batch conversion ultimately this is probably an area where you know more functionality needs to end up in Lightroom but I think that the ultimate goal is to be able to do most of the correction without having to be completely in mind of of that color space issue mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then to kind of try to take care of it in the the output module mm-hmm. kind of more towards that side of things whether that pans out or not we'll have to see and obviously people are used to dealing with this in a Photoshop oriented workflow you know have some issues legitimately um, but that's what we're trying to do with it
0: okay well I think th- I think that's actually a useful clarification for from the previous podcast so yeah, I, I mean, and what's sort
2: of driving Lightroom right now, there is certainly, there is an issue of if you're really worrying about avoiding clipping in sRGB. and What sort of drives things in Lightroom is trying to be consistent between the histogram and the numeric readouts on the tone curve and what you get in the output histogram and the numeric readouts over the image. And you know, the tone curve, uh, since it's sitting in the middle of the workflow, sort of doesn't have as much flexibility on this. But, you know, looking at saying, you know, we could certainly make the numeric readouts be, SR. you know, you could go in, if we could figure out where to host the options, say, oh, well, I want these in sRGB and show me that, uh, show me the clipping, but then it's the, well, do you also then change the output histogram, hmm. which then doesn't tie back as nicely, and it actually has to do with, you know, speeding up the generation of the output histogram is where there's an issue on performance potentially, well, maybe we'll or it could be only in the, or do you allow develop to be different from the library in terms of what it shows you on the histogram? So.
0: Well, some interesting problems to ponder for version two. Yeah.
2: <laughs>
0: okay. Well, um, before we wrap up here, i got a couple of quick questions. Andrew Rodney has uh, writing in and asking what can be done with respect to DNG so that it can support everything in Lightroom and write all that info inside the package.
3: It should be working 1.0. <laughs> um,
2: well, I think he's worrying about also things like history and so forth. And the answer is Lightroom could just dump a huge block of data in that isn't into the middle of XMP that isn't designed to be read by anything else other than Lightroom. Um, and we talk about this on occasion, but there's sort of, you know, that doesn't smell quite right to
1: people who are more on the XMP side of things. Um, yeah, I mean, not only that, but do you want to guarantee that history block works from version to version of Lightroom on into the far-flung future, uh, you know?
2: Yeah, uh, I, uh, I actually tried to kill history from Beta 5 and had various people tell, or, you know, from version 1 or whatever. It goes by various names around here, because it's the version after Beta 4, but yeah you know, what, what form that gets to the public and, you know the, the inclination is to call it B5 but you know it's really it's you know what's happening for version 1 sort of moved to kill history and had various people dissuade me from it but it does mean that you know as we look at things like more localized correction and so forth the
1: Weight of history is going to get worse and worse over time. <laughs> yeah, the first thing to make clear is that all of the parameters that control the appearance of the image, and you know, we're, we're talking about non destructive metadata based editing, blah blah blah, the, all the image data and all of those parameters do land in the DNG. The mm-hmm. parameters are all in XMP, most of them are documented currently, and the rest will be documented at some point before too long. Uh, don't actually Know the committed well, date to off the, the extent top that my we head. document these things. Yeah, yeah, Adobe and he, hasn't
2: told you what to do with the number. right? You right. Yeah,
1: <laughs> and, and we do have goals to improve the, that interoperability. Um, it kind of gets into your intention. If your intention is to take your image from one program to another and maintain visual appearance, and maybe even be able to do edits in different environments, that we kind of have a handle on. History is another level of things because. I mean that's very intimate with a specific program that history doesn't really make any sense. However, it has some very interesting properties for provenance. You know what? You know if you have to prove what happened to this image, you know how you got from what came out of the camera. Well, the history, if it's moderately readable in some sense, even if you can't process those as commands in another program, might be interesting.
3: With metadata edits, that's not all that interesting as for provenance because you do have all the controls that. Or set of the final result you don't really care exactly what order the users adjusted those controls
1: um, I've I, some things that I've wanted personally and hopefully we'll get in it's probably not going to be in the 1.0 ACR 40 time frame but um, kind of notes um, like when I'm working on an image occasionally I want to drop a note in a, um, into that into that that sequence. I can see that says you know here's why I made this decision or perhaps you know it might be better as this, it's and comments in code. Yeah, exactly. And with <laughs> with, with snapshots and as a virtual vir- virtual, if where you end up with multiple copies of the same image, this is actually pretty important. Why did why what was I thinking when I did this one, this one, and this one? Exactly. Um, so I'd like to see us do a little bit more of that. And for people who are in significant workflows, you know, that's actually a, could be a pretty interesting thing to embed mm-hmm. in the DNG. Sure.
3: Okay. It it may not make sense in the long term to embed history because that could get very large, and it's very very Lightroom specific. What would make sense would be to embed the snapshots, because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. the user
1: actually explicitly creates these. It's and, still again just metadata, yeah. Yeah. and it's yeah. the same parameters. Like it's very well yep. defined.
0: Yeah, I did want to talk about versions versus virtual copies, but um, we have a couple of questions from Shiri, so let's just let's let's do a couple of those real quick. Um, and you can uh, decline to answer if, uh, if he's digging into uh, sacred spaces. Are we working on better color demosaicing, sharpening, and noise reduction, particularly since sensors are getting much higher ISOs, et cetera?
3: We're always working on that kind of stuff. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> of
0: course. Okay. Yeah. Jeff Sheehy also asks, what direction do you think sensors are going in since most photographers have already made the transition from film to digital? What's gonna compel photographers to get new cameras? Because uh let's see, megapixel capture size, better signal to noise ratio, better color, more dynamic range.
2: All of the above. All of the above, yeah. Yeah. I mean personally I'm looking for better signal to noise and uh, better dynamic range. Which is really the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, it comes down to because you know the number of pixels there, um, well, I guess, actually, if I had better low-light performance, then I could shoot faster and I could get away with more handheld stuff. I mean, it's one of these things where I shoot enough handheld work in low-light that, for example, the 1DS Mark II is too many pixels for me because mm-hmm. I can't actually get the benefit of that without having you know some amount of camera shake that undermines it.
1: Yeah, the, the flip side is its low-light performance is uh, is quite... I mean, those yeah. pixels are useful for improving your low light p- performance, it turns out. But it's an interesting question. And I think that, that we will probably see some fairly significant improvements in sensor performance, you know, low level technologies. Which ones they will be and when they will come out, I wouldn't really want to predict and it also requires you know making some bets on different players in the industry that it's really not our position to sure. y- you know they're all good they're all going to have their values and we're going to support them all my, my suspicion is that the
2: pixel count is going to keep going up because that's easy for people for the camera manufacturers to sell
3: it's it's very similar to the the megahertz race of (laughs) yeah the 90s but it it does become the sort of thing
2: that after a point um uh, there certainly are benefits to more pixels but you have to deal with things like you know camera shake and sort of undermine it and you know, and all those extra pixels do then interfere with your processing performance. You're going to really, you're going to need the machine that has more RAM and a faster processor.
1: Um, the other thing I was going to say that, that, to my mind, you know, as somebody actually goes out and shoots photos, the very high-end large camera market, there are a number of products there that produce excellent photographic performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I'll say. I mean, they'll get better. I look forward to them getting better. I'm totally down with that. But but that end of things is already really stellar. What's really been remarkable to me, especially and it's completely unfolding w- with the product lines now, is that at the low end, like, you know, $700-ish price point, the, the imaging performance is getting to be really quite stellar. Mm-hmm. And also, the cameras are getting smaller. We're starting to see, you know, there's this renaissance in the rangefinder market. And, you know, you, they're pros and cons to the rangefinder some people love them some people hate them but it's really cool to see that that's actually going to make the transition into digital mm-hmm. so to my mind what's going to drive forward you know photographers buying equipment is not just the sensor necessarily at this point it's you know, going to be camera form factor the, the entire package of the imaging system lenses we're seeing some uh, i think Hasselblad announced at the high end uh, a digital Lens that uh, requires you know digital processing to Hmm. to uh, you know, the lens is built for a digital camera effectively Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that's kind of a uh, you know another place where the uh, technology is going Mm -hmm. Um, so uh, The megapixel race is often denigrated I actually think that the manufacturers for the most part are paying attention to image quality not not the number on the camera yeah. Well, at the high end, I think, you know, probably on the cell phones. <laughs> uh, yeah, cell, cell phones are a whole other story, and I, I, you know, I'll have to exempt myself from that discussion, because I don't get it, but I actually, I do get it for communication purposes, but I kind of place that in a different category than sure. photography. Yeah, me uh, too.
0: Uh, but it's it's uh, changing pretty fast.
1: Yeah, it's and it's cool, and I love the photos that you get out of it for certain purposes are, are, are a really interesting phenomenon, but... You're starting
0: to see them show up in news reports.
3: Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Yeah. But I've seen a nice analysis somewhere where someone
2: pointed out that basically, for the size sensor that they're having to put in the cell phones, putting more pixels on it generally will result in worse worse images. Yeah,
1: definitely, absolutely.
0: (laughs) So Jeff Sheehy also asks, what is sensor ISO all about, R E the meter that allows one to shoot a target and determine a camera's true ISO?
3: Well, a camera's true ISO is actually kind of arbitrary in a lot of ways because um, there's going to be some ISO of the sensor in the camera itself and that's pretty deterministic because at a certain point uh, the uh, either the sensor starts saturating or the uh, uh, analog digital converters clip and it won't take any more signal than that. So the amount the of light that it takes to get to one of those points you know, can be measured and that's directly proportional to the sensitivity of the sensor. Mm-hmm. Now, the cameras, they actually set themselves up so that on a normal exposure, they leave a little bit of headroom over the highlights. They don't intentionally drive right next to clipping. They drive a little below clipping. And the amount of headroom that the cameras leave uh, between the sensor clipping and where the, the normal target exposure is varies from camera model to camera model. Mm-hmm. And some camera models tend to exposed further low on the sensor, uh, S- sensor the sensitivity scale to leave a lot of headroom and if you, you know, th- those cameras you can do a lot of negative exposure compensation in the rocket burner and get a lot of detail back other m- manufacturers run their sensors a lot hotter closer to clipping and so you have much less headroom to, to pull back the advantage of running them hotter is that um, you know they get much th- uh, lower shadow noise yep so it's a, it's a trade-off and Actually, users can override this choice the manufacturers make by shooting in raw format and using the exposure compensation on the camera. So if you have a camera that has leaves lots of ha- highlight headroom, you can make it operate like a camera that has uh, a less highlight headroom and, and better mm-hmm. shadow performance by, by manually forcing the, the images to look overexposed and then pulling the exposure back in the rock converter. Uh, similarly, if you have a camera that runs very hot and you want extra highlight routine, uh just dial back the exposure compensation. The images a little dark, and then bring them up in the in the rock and, you, and if you make a mistake and you blow something out, it's much less likely to happen that way. That makes sense. I'd
1: I'd be interested to look at this product because it strikes me as a a, kind of a strange concept because rating film, even moderately serious film work, you always rated your film. You decided what ISO you wanted to choose for a particular film, and you dialed that into your meter. So this feature strikes me as kind of questionable and I, I is this my, like my, putting my,
2: stabilizer
1: rings on CDs so that they won't you won't have wow and flutter I, I, I'll, <laughs> I, I'll have to go look at it my guess is you can also I mean if you want to tell what the decision that a, a manufacturer has made with respect yeah. to their ISO calibration mm-hmm. you can do that with any light meter yeah, um, yeah. You, you basically meter with the camera and you meter with the uh, with a, a well calibrated light meter it will tell you where where the quote-unquote actual ISO is yeah I mean so
2: there is certainly yeah there are interesting things to do there but yeah it's one of these defining do what really it means for that? the iso yeah. of the sensor is yeah yeah
0: <laughs> well gentlemen i think we should probably wrap it up now we have another meeting to go to but thank you appreciate your time again i think this was a good one and um congratulations on uh the approaching launch of all these new products you guys we'll have go back to and work and done it an amazing, amazing
3: job finish this thing All right. Anything up and get it out the door. Let's get it out the door.
0: (laughs) Thanks guys.